0: Well, good morning, New City Church. Hope you guys are doing well. When I was in college, I had a friend who lied about everything. And um, it, <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, we actually, I guess the senior year of high school, he actually moved to where I went to high school. We didn't really interact that much and then we started hanging out in college. And I didn't really know this about him, but he would just say all this crazy stuff totally unprompted, and I get there's a tendency in all of us to maybe want to exaggerate and make ourselves look better, but his stuff would be like out of nowhere. So for example, one time there was a group of us driving in a car, we were going to this shopping center in Wilmington, I went to school at UNC Wilmington, and there was this roundabout where there was like this grassy roundabout and there was grass in the middle of it, and there was donuts. You know, someone had like done donuts. None of us said anything. We're like, oh, so we did donuts. We weren't like, that was awesome. That was cool. We're like, that's weird. And out of nowhere, he was like, oh, that was me. Like last night, I just came in my car and like did donuts in the, by, I mean, like, that's okay. Um, in Wilmington, you play volleyball a lot. And so sand volleyball is a thing. So we played it all the time. And uh, one time we're playing. And again, out of nowhere, he says, I was a state volleyball champion when I lived in Texas, which would have been like fine, except he also, um, we were playing volleyball together. So we actually could see like, you're not even that good. So, like, I don't, I don't, like, He just like, all the time, the stuff would come, it's like, why would you lie? And so he would say anything he said, after that point, I was like, I don't, I don't believe you. And uh, what was crazy is some of the stuff he would say would would kind of be out of nowhere, kind of be hard to believe. And so it was just really easy for him not to believe, or not really for easy for us not to believe anything that he said. And when you think about Jesus and the Christmas story and the various things around it, there are some pretty outlandish, pretty uh, crazy, at least seemingly unnormal claims that happen. And so it's really easy to view what Jesus did uh, when he came to be unbelievable. And so in this series, we're taking a few weeks this December and looking at some of the miraculous or maybe outlandish claims. of the Christmas story. Uh, last week, we looked about, did Jesus actually exist? And today, we're looking at this question. Uh, can we take the Gospels seriously? Now, the Gospels are the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are the story of Jesus and his teachings. And so we are looking at four different topics. Uh, by the way, if, as you leave today at the Connect table at the TO wall, we have a bunch of these books off the same four topics that we're talking of. Uh, it's written by Rebecca McLaughlin, and she's looking at a little bit of a deeper dive in some of these topics, if you're interested, totally free, recommend you picking it up. It's super small, super easy to uh, to read. And she also looks at these same questions. And so for, for us, can we actually take them seriously? Now, the Gospels are really the reason for this Christmas season because they tell us the story of Jesus. And while the story of Jesus may be warming to our hearts and it might sound good and make us feel good or give us hope or give us joy, the question is, can it actually be trusted? can actually be trusted. And so today, I'm going to try to move a little bit quicker. It's going to be different than probably a typical sermon, but my hope and my encouragement is to encourage us as followers of Jesus as we look at this question. Now, uh, the Gospels themselves uh, at least claim to be trustworthy sources of information. Uh, For example, in Luke chapter 1, it'll be on the screen. Uh, By the way, all the verses will be on the screens today, so you can turn there if you want, or you can just read them on the screens. Luke says this. This is how the Gospel of Luke starts. It says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Now, we don't know who Theophilus is. It's largely assumed that he was the one who financed Luke to investigate all these things, in which case Luke, uh, because of that, wrote the book of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts, which is the story of the first century church and how it started. Uh, John, in John chapter 21, towards the end of the gospel, John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, he writes this, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Now, the question for us, however, is this This actually true. Now, they say that we should believe them, but why should we actually just take their word for it? I mean, some of the questions that you might get were, weren't the gospels written too long after the events described to actually be believable? Uh, can we take them actually as sources of trustworthiness when it comes to things like Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection? Or perhaps you heard it this way, isn't it like the telephone game where you play that with it when you're a kid? In fact, our kids were playing this yesterday. That was kind of random. It didn't really work very well because I have two kids, and so there's only three of us, so there wasn't enough time, and they both could hear each other whisper in my ear. And so it didn't really work that way. But when you're a kid, you have like eight people and and you whisper and you say it once. And then by the, the time the last person gets it, it's completely different. If you're lucky, one word survived. And so the question goes, should we actually trust the Gospels? Uh, most likely here's what we do know. Uh, Mark was the first gospel written probably around the mid60s to early 70s. This is about 35 years after Jesus' resurrection. John is traditionally of the four Gospels viewed as the last one written somewhere around 90 AD. And so uh, that's about 60 years after Jesus' resurrection. Now we do have some of the letters in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, some of them as dated as early as 49 AD, which 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 is pretty close, but still, that's about 18 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So can we actually believe them? And why did they actually wait so long to write them down? So that's a question. Another question you have is, were the miracles added on later on as a a way to prop up this Jesus guy so that people would believe in this movement, right? Especially in some cases, as we just saw, there are decades separating the events from when they were actually written down. In fact, well-known atheist Richard Dawkins, he puts it this way. He says, everything that is in the Gospels suffered from decades of word of mouth retelling, telephone distortion, and exaggeration before those four texts were finally written down. Isn't that assuming? Isn't that probably what happened? Or weren't there a lot of Messiah-like figures claiming divine authority? Isn't that kind of a, 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 weren't there a lot of people in the ancient world saying that there was something special about them? What makes Jesus any different? Or put another way, again, can we actually, therefore, take the Gospels seriously? Can we actually trust them? Now, I will say this, historically, uh, we do know that the, the Gospels were beginning, began to be written when the disciples started to die out, either by force or natural causes, when the early followers of Jesus started to die out, that the Gospels began to be written. And so I submit to you that the better question might not be why weren't they written right away, but rather, why were they written at all? Right? Why were they actually written at all? And in fact, it's, it's important for us to realize the cultural difference that we're in. The writing process in the ancient world was much different than it is now. It was very expensive, especially if you were writing on documents that were supposed to be shared and written down. You would have to have prof- professional scribes, uh, professional documentation. Uh, it's also worth noting that about 90% of the Roman Palestinian area where Jesus lived in the first century could not write their name. That's the estimation, and in fact, in the whole Roman Empire, it was estimated that there was only about a 3% proficient literacy rate in the roman world at the time of jesus and so when we ask these questions why wasn't it written down right away it's i think it's helpful to know that unlike our culture today where if it's not written down it didn't count like if there's an hr complaint if you like talk with the employee or the employee then they have to send a follow-up email to make sure it's written down or there's like these loopholes and all these things in these legal documents and if it's not written down it doesn't actually happen in the ancient world writing things down like that didn't actually help because most people couldn't read at all. In fact, if you were to only have things written down and not have things known that orally that people could talk about, they would think that was actually weird. And so it's a much different mindset today than it would have been back then because most people couldn't read and write anyway. Or uh, the problem, again, with adding Jesus' miracles later on, that's another claim. Well, it was decades after the fact, and they kind of get bigger and bigger. And that is an understandable question. The only problem with that, or I'd say the biggest problem with that, is that the biggest miracle of Jesus, the resurrection, is attested to in the earliest writings. And so you would assume that might have been uh, made a bigger thing later on, but yet the earliest writings we know of, uh, which were written before the Gospels, talk about the resurrection, And I think it's just worth knowing this, that unlike when we exaggerate stories to make ourselves look better, or like my friend in college who just completely lies out of nowhere, uh, we do know this, that Jesus' followers in the first century were shunned and sometimes actually killed. Uh, It's worth remembering uh, that the, the earlier leaders of the Jesus movement did not get any of the things that we typically desire. Like the big three things in life that people talk about that humans desire is sex, power, and money. Right, that's those are the main drivers that people often talk about what's interesting is that the Jesus followers the leaders of that movement actually did not get those things that you would expect leaders uh, leaders and people of power to have so for example when it comes to sex uh, it is they talked about how you should not have sex with anyone except your spouse that sex is a good it is a life-giving but God has boundaries and guardrails for our good in fact even in the New Testament when you have letters like First and Second Timothy or Titus when it talks about elders in the church those who leave the church, it talks about that they have to be men of one wife. Now, why is this significant? Well, because in ancient world, most people did not get married for romantic love. And uh, many times it was for legacy purposes. It was for inheritance. It was for legal stuff. It was all these different things. And it was kind of understood and accepted that if you were a man, you were allowed to go outside of your marriage to be sexually fulfilled and your wife cannot divorce you or do anything about it. So it was a common practice for many men in the Roman empire to sleep, to have sex with other women on the side. And that's kind of like the cultural norm to, to do and to practice, and nobody would have argued with it. And yet to be a leader in the Jesus movement, you had to be a husband of one, you had to be faithful to your spouse and to your spouse only. Therefore, your sex life was restricted. It was less than what the average person might think about. Or when it comes to money, right? Giving to the poor and those who are in need were a hallmark, and they still are, of Christians, of those who follow Jesus. Now, we don't really understand how big of a deal this was because Christian influence has made this such a commonplace uh, that we kind of forget, particularly in a society in the ancient world, we're pretty much everyone was paycheck to paycheck. It's rural, it's agricultural, you have no bank account, you have no savings, and so to be generous with what you have was a big deal because you did not know if you would have in the next month. And so if you read historically the rise of Christianity, this was a big reason that people were giving away their resources. They were adopting children, many times girls, who who parents had left out to the elements because they wanted sons. They were taking them in. In fact, this became such a problem for the Roman Empire that in the 360s AD, Emperor Julius, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, wrote a letter that we still have to a pagan priest. And he was imploring him to initiate the practice of Christian charity because he wanted to bring about a revival of paganism in the Roman empire. And now, of course his plea failed because this kind of sustained sacrificial love cannot happen out of obligation. There has to be a desire to want to do it. But here's what he says to uh, the pagan priest. He says it this way, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, he's referring to Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. In other words, the only reason they're doing this is they're trying to convert people. That's the only motivation. They don't actually like, care about people. It's just they're trying to, they knew that if they're nice to them, that they'll convert them. And he says this, they support not only their poor, but ours as well. All mean, All men see that our people lack aid from us. So less sex, general population might assume, way less power, way less money, and then when it comes to power, many times they were beaten, mocked, and sometimes killed. At the very least, many Christians in first century Rome were out, uh, were ostracized from their community because of their allegiance to Jesus. And, and here's why. It's not that early Christians were anti-Rome, or anti-the emperor, but civic religion kind of ruled the day. So it's not that everyone was super devout pagans necessarily, but everything you do centered around the, the Roman gods and then also your local gods. And so uh, events, uh, workers' guilds, when you go to the meat market, everything had already been pre-sacrificed, if you will, which is why Paul talks about sacrifice to idols and eating the meat, why it's such a big thing in the first century world, but pretty much everything you did involved this. And so you would have to go through the motions if you're a Christian, kind of uh, implicitly saying, I agree with this. A lot of Christians had problems with this, and so they did not interact and did not do many of the normal things that typical people living in the Roman areas did, which they were kind of viewed as out anarchist by the leadership. They were viewed as problematic because they would not say, these gods, Not only did they not exist, but even that Caesar himself was not God. And so a lot of the privileges, the the best, see, our, our culture is so different. It's really hard for us to really understand this. The best example I could come up with is like when you go to a sporting event, right? They always play the national anthem. And you have some people that are like, hands, you know, take the hat off, hand over the heart, you listen. You have some people that like don't really care. Uh, you know, one time I was at a Duke football game. Like who goes to those? I don't know. I was there. And um, we were walking like to our seats. We're like in the main concourse area and the national anthem started. And my friend grabbed my hand and he's like, Dylan, stay still and like, you know, go to attention. And I was like, okay, sh- yes, yes, sir. Which is fine. Like I have nothing against that. But for us, again, it's, it's patriotism. It's the, nat- it's the Pledge of Allegiance. Like there's nothing wrong with that. It's not, it's not worshiping the American God just to say the Pledge of Allegiance or to sing the National Anthem. But in the Roman Empire, it wasn't just to a country, it was to a God as if the God was the creator of everything. And so you can see how this could be problematic if you were to say, no, I'm not going to participate in that. People would assume that there's something up. And so they they did not get any power. Money, sex, and power, that was not given to the leaders of the Jesus movement. Now, there were plenty of freedom fighters and self-proclaimed messiahs in the ancient world, even in the Roman Empire. But here's one of the profoundly unique things about Jesus. That historically, all of these Messiah-led movements, they all led the same, ended the same way. Either the leader was killed or he was deposed of and the movement either died out or transferred leadership to somebody else. Claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead and that people should continue to worship him uh, and to follow him is incompatible with any historical figure that we know of. Now you might have like stories of, you know, the Greek and Roman pagan gods or people died and resurrected, and that's those mythologies, that's fine, but we don't have any historical record of anyone who actually existed after he died, his movement, even though other people led it, we're still saying, no, we're still gonna worship that guy. It is completely unique to Christianity. And one last thing that's interesting is that the resurrection was first seen and heard by women. This is attested to in all of the gospels. Now, this is significant because women in the first century in the ancient world, uh, their testimony was not accepted in court. It doesn't matter how many women saw something, men would not believe it. They would not be attested to. It was just kind of the cultural assumption at the time. They were not to be believed. And so, to be frank, again, trying to make us understand how this would have been viewed in the ancient world, uh, it's imagine, for example, a group of four-year-olds running up to to you and saying that somebody had risen from the dead. Now, it is awful to know that women's testimony was viewed like that by men in the ancient world, but it was. And so if somebody, again, that's the kind of the thing you're all kind of taught, that you, if somebody, if my four-year-old Roman came to me and said, hey, this person like came out, I'm like, that's cute, buddy. Now nah, I'm not going to listen to you, right? And so we have to ask this question, why do all four Gospels present women as the first witnesses knowing this is not going to help their cause? Why would they do that? It only makes sense if that is what actually happened. So should we believe the women in the Gospels? That's the question. In fact, uh, the, even the disciples of Jesus were skeptical. And In Luke 24, it says this. It says, "Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the 11, so the disciples and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other with other women who went to the tomb and saw that it was empty, came to the disciples, with, with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Now, to be fair, uh, these men knew these women. I don't think it was just a, you're a woman, I'm not going to believe you. I think a lot of it was, what you're saying is simply not believable. I don't care who you are. So we must ask, why do, again, all four Gospels present women as the first uh, witnesses? It must be because they are trying to communicate, this is actually what happened, regardless if this looks like bad propaganda in the ancient world. In fact, this might be helpful to know uh, if there are three things that all New Testament books have in common. Uh, They were all written in the first century. Uh, They were all eyewitness accounts or written from people who spent time with the eyewitnesses. And so Mark, for example, Peter was his primary source or Luke spent time with the disciples uh, learning from them. They were either written by eyewitness accounts or people who spent time with the eyewitnesses. And last but not least, they were all largely circulated independently of one another. In other words, uh, the Bible that we have in our current form didn't wasn't canonized, if you will, until the 300s. And there's a lot of debates about why. People like to say things that simply aren't true about it. But one of the things that's fascinating to know is that in the ancient world, where there's no internet, there's no connection, that all the 27 books in the New Testament that are in our New Testament somehow, some way were largely circulated and taught on and preached on and read independently of one another. And so what I want to do here real quickly is I want to give you, for example, how can we actually read the Gospels and know if we should take them seriously? Well, one of the ways you can do that is by looking at the details that are described in the Gospels and ask yourself, are these details accurate, and how would they have known to put them in there if they were written from people hundreds of years later or a hundred years later in places not even close to Judea? So what I want to do first is I want to look at one of the miracles, the, in fact, the only miracle that is actually recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. So whether you're completely new to church or you've been in your church since you were a baby, most people are familiar with or at least heard of the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus miraculously feeds all these people. Now, here's the thing. We cannot prove a miracle occurred. Nobody can, but we can ask this. Does the narrative come from people who were part of the alleged event Invent, or was it made up and added on by later, later on by people who did not even have anything to do with it? Again, as a way to kind of prop up this Jesus guy and advance the myth, as popularly often argued. And so the first question we could ask is, uh, how do you count 5,000? Is this just pastor math? Like, well, it's a couple hundred people, but let's make that sound really good, right? You can't live stream, you can't double check, so you just got to believe me, 5,000 people were there. Or did they actually come to that number from a reasonable perspective? Here, here's it'll be on the screen. Here's what it says. Here's. Mark's account it says this in verse 6 uh, chapter chapter 6 says then he talking about Jesus instructed them his disciples to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties <laughs> Luke's account Luke chapter 9 says this says for about 5000 men were there then he told his disciples have them sit down in groups of about 50 each they did what he said and they had them all Sit down. So if they actually followed these instructions, this would be less than 100 groups. If you divide that by 12 disciples, that's each disciple counting to about eight. They might not be able to read a lot, but they probably can do some math, especially, because you know, we have some tax collectors, we have some fishermen in there. Uh, could the disciples count to eight? Probably. And so you begin to see, although they might have gotten this number from somewhere that they actually could have counted. Now, there's a lot of other details that are quite fascinating about uh, the feeding of the 5,000. You can go to the next slide. Uh, Mark chapter 6 and John chapter 6 both say that there was grass. Mark says the grass was green, or there was green grass, uh, and John says there was plenty of grass. Now, how would they have known that there was grass if this was written by people who were not there? The gospel doesn't say. It just tells us that there was a lot of green grass. Mark's gospel in chapter 6 also tells us that many people were coming and going, but it does not tell us why many people were coming and going. And if you read the narratives, you find out that where Jesus is doing this feeding of the 5,000 is not in a typically highly populated area, so it would be really strange to have a lot of people where Jesus is. But John's gospel tells us that Passover Was near. This is in Jerusalem when you would have hundreds of thousands of Jews come to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And so it would begin to make sense why you might see a lot of people coming and going. What's also interesting is that John's gospel uh, says that Jesus asks Philip where to buy bread from, right? They're going to feed all these people. They don't have enough bread. And so the first thing Jesus asks is Philip, where should we buy bread? Now, why does he ask Philip? Well, it doesn't tell us in that narrative. And then in verse 7 and 8, it says, Philip and Andrew got in on the reply. Now, why would Andrew get in on the reply? The gospel doesn't say. But Luke's gospel tells us that the feeding was near Bethsaida. And in John's gospel, in the beginning, it tells us that Philip and Andrew were from Bethsaida. Even John's comment on the barley loaves, how would we have known that they were actually barley loaves? Well, it fits with the season of Passover because the barley harvest would have just taken place in this area. Now, this brings us back to the first question. How do we know that the grass would have actually been green? Fortunately, there is a participa- precipitation part by a chart from a nearby town that we can pull up, and here's what it tells us. Uh, you might not be able to see this fully. This is the uh, how much uh, annual rain in that area would have been for any given number of years in that time. The yellow area is when Passover would have been somewhere between April and April-ish, and you find right there that you have the sixth largest months amount of rainfall in the year every year leading up to Passover. So would the grass have actually been green, the answer to that question is yes. Now, here's the problem. You could not have made that up well away from the place. You could not have known that unless you were intimately familiar or were actually there. Now, again, some people, this is why this is important. Some people will argue that Jesus didn't actually perform any miracles, that they were instead attributed to him way after the fact as some sort of gradual process to make him seem like a Messiah. Kind of like, again, the game of telephone, like we just said, where you, someone says one thing, someone says the next thing. And then uh, at the end of the day, you have this crazy thing that was not actually said. But here is the problem. When you begin to put all these details together, you begin to see how that they actually check out. The other problem you have is what's interesting about the miracles is that, A, how many attributed to them there are of Jesus. It's not like there's a couple. There's a lot. Uh, B, how undramatized they are. Like when you just read the Gospels, it's kind of like, well, then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. You would expect there'd be a lot of pomp and circumstance around all of his miracles, but that's not what you see. And then thirdly, see that the opponents of of Christianity in the first century did not dispute that Jesus' miracles actually happened but rather the power from where they got him or where he got it from. Many times it was demonic or people would say it was magic. Even the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders who did not like Jesus, didn't say he didn't do the miracles. They just disputed the power from which they came. And so the problem that we have is that, uh, the, that there are so many miracles attributed to Jesus and the process from which this would have to have happened if they were all made up over time is that this would also have had to corrupt the minor details They would have to corrupt the minor details. They would have to be changed because people would not have known. And yet what you see when you read the Gospels is that the minor details are always correct. Put another way, uh, you couldn't question whether or not a miracle actually occurred but still have all these minor details correct. It just doesn't make sense, right? What you would expect is that the minor details would be altered or changed or probably honestly left out altogether, yet that is not what we see in the Gospels. They get names, typography, geography, the description of names, how far distances are, are correct every single time. In fact, it is far more likely, again, that you would get the main miracle correct, that this thing actually happened or the proposed event actually happened, and that you would get all the minor details wrong because it would have changed over time or was completely made up by people who weren't actually there, which means, again, if the Gospels could get the minor details correct, it's at least logical and reasonable to believe that they could also get the major details correct. Uh, take for example how Jesus was referenced in the Gospels. I'm going to move through quickly, and this is a lot of information. But if you stick with me for the next five minutes, you'll see how this pays off really, really well. What's fascinating is that in the Gospels, how Jesus is referred to a, when when, when the gospel writer is telling him a story, telling us a story about Jesus, is different than how Jesus is referred to in quoted speech. In other words, for example, in Matthew uh, 27, 7, uh, Matthew 27, get my notes right here, 16. Is that where we are? Yeah. Matthew 27, 21, verse 6. Is that where you are? Yeah. Well, Here's what you see. It says this. The disciples went and did just as de- uh, Jesus directed them. So anytime the, 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 the narrator is telling us about Jesus, he just says Jesus. He doesn't disambiguate his name. He doesn't give us any qualifiers because we know who we are reading about. Now, what's fascinating to understand is that in this first century, it is estimated that the name Jesus was about the sixth most common name in the Palestinian area, which means whenever somebody was talking about Jesus, you would have to disambiguate somehow. Otherwise, people would not know who you are. Yet the narrative writers only just call him Jesus in quoted speech, but, or when they're talking about it. But then in quoted speech, it changed. So for example, in Matthew 21, 11, it says this. The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, And Galilee, this is the story when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into the Jerusalem temple. So whenever people talk about Jesus, he's given a qualifier. But then in verse 12, when it goes back to just the narration, it says this, Jesus went into the temple. And so when we read, it's obvious which Jesus we're talking about. But for the crowds back then, they would have had to differentiate who they were speaking of because Jesus was a very common name. And what we see is throughout the gospels, how people spoke to Jesus, who not only was he given a qualifier, but he was spoken of as an authentic, uh, in an authentic way in the region that he was in. So let me give you another example. In Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial with Pilate after he's been betrayed. It says this, Jesus told him. So the narrator simply tells us Jesus is talking to Pilate. He doesn't disambiguate because he's simply telling us a story about Jesus. But then a few verses later, it says this, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl approached him and said, you were with Jesus, the Galilean. Now, not every Jesus comes from Galilee, and so this woman distinguishes, distinguishes which Jesus she is referring to. And then a few verses later, Peter is confronted again by another woman. It says this, another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was, a, was with Jesus, the Nazarene. And then this, the narrator simply tells, keeps telling us the story. When they're talking to someone about Jesus, they have to disambiguate. In fact, it says this in verse 75, and Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you would deny me three times. Again, there's no disambiguation because the narrator is simply telling us a story about Jesus. The way the characters speak is one way. The way the narrator speaks is another. I'll give you another quick example. Later on in Matthew 27, the next chapter, uh, Jesus is with Pilate, and again, he's on trial. It says this, uh, so when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, 'Who who is it you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ. Pilate is in front of the prisoners. They do an annual, once a year at Passover, they allow one prisoner to go free. So he's asking them, who do you want me to release? And then it says this in verse 22, Pilate asks them, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Now again, not every Jesus had the name Christ or the Messiah associated with him. And so Pilate here is distinguishing. Verse 37, a few verses later, it says above his head, when he's hung on the cross, they put up the charge against him in this writing. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Not every Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews. In fact, this is pretty funny. In Matthew 28, it says this, the angel told the women when they were at the tomb trying to tend to Jesus' body, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus whom was crucified. So even the, even the angel speaks and has to distinguish that Jesus who you're talking about is the one that you thought had been crucified. Now the other gospels do this as well. I just want to highlight Mark real quick and then I'm going to show you why this is significant. Uh, Mark says it this way in Mark chapter one. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? So he's talking to a group of people. There's a lot of Jesuses, they're distinguishing which Jesus they're talking to. Or in chapter 10, this is interesting, it says this, When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, if you're astute, you might notice a problem here, that in Mark 10, the narrator starts out with a qualification. When you heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, why would the narrator distinguish which Jesus it is? Shouldn't we actually know? Well, the reason why is because he is reporting in this miracle, something, what somebody heard that this man had heard that this man named Jesus of Nazareth was coming. And so the point in Mark 10 is is not that this this man simply heard someone named Jesus, but that he knew that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was coming. And of course, not every Jesus had their genealogy traced back to David. And so he says, Jesus, son of David, because he knows who he is, have mercy on me. In Mark chapter 14, again, when Peter is being uh, accused of following Jesus, it says this, you were also with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. Or in John 16, 6, the women at the tomb, it says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. Well, again, I'm not going to go through all the examples, and I'm not going to go through all the examples in Luke and John, but you see the same thing in Luke and John. When the narrator's talking, it's just Jesus, but when he's distinguishing in quoted speech, there's always a qualification, except there are two problems, once in Luke and once in John, where the narrator doesn't distinguish in quoted speech who Jesus is. The question is, did did they mess up here? Well, in Luke 23, it says this, Jesus Remember me. So somebody's speaking to Jesus, and he's not, he's not qualified who he's talking about. But this scene is when Jesus is on the cross. He's having a one-on-one conversation with the thief next to him. And so this thief is clearly talking to the only Jesus in front of him. And also, when you're hanging on a cross, you probably don't have much time. <clears throat> and I didn't know if that was going to be funny or not, but hey, there we go. Right? But it's a one-on-one conversation. The only Jesus he's talking to, he wouldn't disambiguate. Then you have one other example in John chapter 9. It says this, the man Jesus made Mud. Now in John chapter 9, it's a a story of a miracle of Jesus healing a blind man who could not see. And the point of John chapter 9 is that this man had been given physical sight, but he has not yet given spiritual sight. And so throughout the narrative in John chapter 9, this man slowly begins to realize more and more who Jesus is. But in the beginning, the man is ignorant of who this man was other than his name. And so he doesn't distinguish who he is because he doesn't know who it was. All he knows is that someone named Jesus had healed him. And so, again, there's a plenty of examples. We could go through a lot more, but here's what you see. Across all four Gospels, the people in the crowds who are referring to Jesus always qualified who they are speaking about, which, again, would have been completely unnecessary and completely, I mean, yeah, you wouldn't need it if it was written 100 years later or in a completely different context if these Gospels were composed by people who did not take part in the event or lived in the places that these events happened. You wouldn't qualify Jesus in quoted speech because as we're reading the story, we know who you're talking about. And secondly, you wouldn't qualify him correctly because you don't know how people in Jerusalem would have qualified Jesus, which is different than people in Bethlehem, which is different than people in Tarsus. All these people would have qualified him differently, and yet the Gospels always get it right. Now, again, I could go on and give more examples, but here's my hope, is that you are seeing how connected and authentic all of this is. And so, yes, there's a lot of things in the Gospels that you could ask questions on that you could push back here or there, but after a while, you have no choice but to sit back and say that all of this seems to add up to the trustworthiness and the reliability, or at least the fact that the Gospels should be taken seriously. And so here is what you can do. Uh, given this circumstance that we see, there's, there's a lot going on here that they're right about. Uh, you could argue that the, gospels were, the gospel writers were just really, really clever in how they constructed everything. Like they somehow knew 2,000 years later there would be this thing called textual criticism where you study the reliability of all the gospels and all the New Testament writers and who said this and what's the Greek syntax here and what this really would have been written by this person. And so to make it seem like all this was really thought out and really prepared, the, the first thought you have is really, that's, that's an interesting thing to consider that they all would have like checked their sources and, and known all these things to make sure there'd be no questions to Two thousand years later, but again, the problem is that the more you appeal to the cleverness of the composers, and they are very smart. Whether you're a Christian or not, it's very brilliant how the Gospels are composed. The, hard, the more you do that, the harder it is to say that they got the main story about Jesus wrong when they got all the minor details right. It is really hard to say that they didn't actually believe Jesus rose from the dead if they got all these other things right, but then they get the main thing wrong. It becomes a lot harder to argue that they did not know what they were talking about if they get the minor details correct. You know how this goes. If somebody tells you a story that maybe they they witnessed something or they saw something like last Sunday after church, not in this shopping center, one about on Lynn and Six Forks, I saw a mugging. We were with the family, and so, like, we had a police. It was awesome. Like, talk to the police officer, and, like, she, like, ran after him. And I don't know what ended up happening. I don't think they ever found him. But, like, so I'm, like, telling this story, and I'm telling people the details because it's like, well, here's what I saw. Here's what happened. What, what happens when somebody tells you a story that you don't really believe, what do you do? You start asking them details. Well, how tall was he? What did he look like? What happened here? And if they can answer those questions correctly, you begin to think, oh, maybe you were actually there. Maybe you were actually there and so, and so I just want to uh, point out this. Um, all that to say, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it'll be on the screen. Uh, 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul in the early 50s. This is one of the earliest letters we have in the New Testament. Now, as a side note, uh, what's, what's just worth noting here, that the 13 letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, seven of them are universally Christian, non-Christian, historical, biblical studies. They all agree Paul wrote them. Six other ones people like to debate about, but Corinthians is, I just say that because Corinthians is one of the ones that everyone agrees that Paul actually wrote. And here's what Paul writes in the early 50s AD. He says this, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, uh, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those, then, who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. What is he saying right away? Listen, if we're making this up, woe to you and to me for believing it. We are wasting our time. You and us, 2,000 years later, we are wasting our time right now. We could be sleeping in, we could be doing all sorts of other things, and yet we're here and we're giving our money and we are serving. If this did not happen, it is a waste of time, right? And the good news of the gospel, what the authors of the gospels in the New Testament are trying to tell us is that this Jesus man actually lived, that he was actually perfect, that he actually died, and that he actually rose again so that you and I can find hope and freedom in the love of Jesus, right? The Christmas story and all of its implications were not a fairy tale to the original audience. They actually believed that this happened and it radically changed how they lived. And what Paul is saying is no matter who you are and what you've done or what has been done to you or the mistakes or the decisions that have been made, if Christ has raised from the dead and is offering you grace and forgiveness, there is hope for all of us. And it is not because of us It is because of him. In fact, Peter says this, one of Jesus' leading disciples in the early church, he puts it this way, for we did not follow uh, cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Now, again, you could say this. Yeah, sure, they didn't get power, money, and sex. But we all know, like, even if you can't make it big time, it's, it's kind of nice to be a big fish in a small pond. Like, maybe they didn't get all this stuff, but at least, like, people respected them. Here's what's crazy. If that's true, would you try to, like, would you try to convince everyone not to believe you if you're making it up? I don't think so. I don't think Paul and Peter would be going around saying, hey, let's, let's trick everybody, but then let's tell them, let's tell them all that we're, that we're lying. Like, I don't think they would do that. Well, they're trying to plead with people saying, hey, we're not making this up. And if you think we are making this up, you, should, you, you shouldn't be here and you should stop wasting your time. What Peter and Paul and the gospel writers and the other New Testament writers are telling us is that they think this actually happened, that Jesus actually came, that God became a man, and the man named Jesus lived a perfect life and died for you and I, took these sins of the world so that we can experience grace and freedom and love. And so I, I know I've shared a lot of information. Here's how I want us to close this morning. Here's just what, what I want us to think about. That there are often two explanations given as to, to the New Testament authors that people often use to explain Christianity and the motive by which the New Testament authors wrote, wrote the Gospels and the other New Testament books. So one of two things. One is that they were really gullible, as religious people often are. They weren't really paying attention to the details. They just wanted to promote this Jesus guy and start their own religion and also aren't most religious people, like, they're just afraid to face, you know, life. And so they just want to make themselves feel better. And so that's what these guys were. And so they, over time, this thing got crazy and crazier. And so they they just... They just did it. They didn't really know what they were talking about, and they couldn't control it, and so it is is what it is. That's one myth, or that's one uh, explanation. They were just gullible. They just wrote stuff. They wanted to trick people. The second one is is the conspiracy theory one that says that they were really clever in how they constructed everything. And by the way, Christian or not, they were very clever. They were very wise. They were very brilliant at how everything is constructed. And so what they did, they knew this. They knew they could trick people, and so they constructed it in such a way that it at least seemed believable to the ancient world. But here's the problem. Those two explanations are fundamentally in tension with each other. They cannot be, both be true. And what I have experienced in my own experience is that people will often use one of these examples to, to talk about one part of the Bible, and they'll use like the kind of gullible, who actually believes this? They just kind of wrote it down. But the other parts of the Bible, they'll use the kind of very clever kind of conspiracy theory, or they're just trying to trick people here. Those things are in fundamental tension. They, they can't both be true. Either one is true or the other is true. And here's just what I want to submit to you this morning. Not to try to convince you that if you have questions and doubts, how dare you, I totally get it. But when we look at the reliability, and should we at least take the Gospels seriously, here's what I would say. Why not just take the middle road between the two options of really clever and really gullible? And that is perhaps that these guys were just ordinary people who weren't particularly stupid or particularly smart and were just saying what they think really happened. Let's pray.